Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The FT. This week, is the conflict in Libya finally coming to an end? Libya has an awful lot going for it, much more than was the situation in Iraq. It is potentially the richest country in Africa. Uh, it's got $100 billion of uh, Gaddafi assets which are coming its way. It should be able to get significant amount of oil exports going within the next year and a half. So there's a huge prize there. The world's new craze for gold? It's something that will always have its value. So in case of Armageddon, good to have gold. If you didn't have Armageddon, then you still would say, well, it was good insurance. So the question of whether you should buy some depends on how much you're willing to pay for your insurance against Armageddon. That probably won't happen. And renewed conflict in Gaza. After quite a violent spike over the weekend, the militant factions in the Gaza Strip declared a truce on Monday afternoon. Now, uh, within uh, really 24 to 48 hours, that already has broken down. It's proving very difficult to stem this escalation and cool things down again. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. We start this week with Libya. As the Libyan rebels celebrated the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime on the streets of Tripoli yesterday, the colonel's spokesman, Musa Ibrahim, issued a defiant message to the world. Despite the presence of the gangs of NATO in some areas of Tripoli, in reality, our military, operational and civilian position is very strong, and we are capable of continuing fighting, not just for days or weeks, but for months or years. We were expecting a conspiracy on this scale, and have prepared all the plans to turn Libya into a battlefield for resistance until victory. Joining me in the studio is the FT's diplomatic editor, James Blitz. James, the Gaddafi people, such as they are, are still trying to claim that the fight goes on. Is there anything in that? A little bit, but not much more than that. I mean, there is something of an insurgency still going on in bits of Tripoli and other parts of the country. Remember, Libya is an absolutely huge landmass, and it's going to take time to completely flush out pockets of resistance. And people, I remember Gaddafi has been there for more than 40 years. There are going to be people who are very loyal to him, but there is no expectation at all in Western capitals that there is any kind of counterinsurgency now happening of a serious nature. I mean, the leaders of the Trans- Transitional National Council are still in Benghazi as of Thursday and have not yet moved over to Tripoli, but the assumption is they will do pretty quickly. When the fall of Tripoli happened, it all happened rather suddenly, and we're just beginning to discover the details. It looks like it was really quite a coordinated, well-planned operation, some months in the works. Is, is that what you're hearing? Yeah, I think more and more is coming out about the fact that this really rather incapable group of rebels suddenly did develop very considerable capability, and they got a fair amount of external support. There's no real doubt about it. I think the Qataris have played a huge role 
in training them, giving them weapons, giving them a lot of logistical support. I think that's one aspect of the story that has still not completely come out. Um, and I think that uh, NATO also was important in terms of special forces operations on the ground. But the fact is that over time, they finally did get their act together in the end, and they did actually carry out an assault on Tripoli that was pretty well coordinated with groups inside the capital who were preparing to rise up against Gaddafi. And so all that did come to an end very well. So they got their act together militarily. Now the question is, can they get their act together politically? How much do we know about the prospects for some sort of stability? I mean, is there a transition in place? Who's emerging as the new forces in in Libya? Well, the Transitional National Council certainly has got plans. It's got a constitution and there's an awful lot on paper which does look very well worked out. But I think if you speak to people in Western capitals, in NATO, they're not 100% sure. I mean, we have seen in the course of the five and a half months, some quite deep divisions did begin to emerge within the rebels. And we saw, of course, the assassination of General Eunice, one of the key people by other factions inside the rebel movement. So there is that possibility of things coming apart. And people in London, for example, don't deny that's a possibility. The thing that makes people more assured is, one, Libya has an awful lot going for it, much more than was the situation in Iraq. It is potentially the richest country in Africa. Uh, It's got $100 billion of uh, Gaddafi assets which are coming its way. It should be able to get significant amount of oil exports going within the next year and a half. So there's a huge prize there. I remember hearing that about Iraq, that that the oil revenues would pay for reconstruction and so on. Exactly. That is the case. That said, one of the big differences between Libya and Iraq is that there hasn't been the most enormous destruction of infrastructure that took place in the US-UK invasion. There's obviously a big humanitarian problem there because hospitals are overcrowded and so on, but all told, it's actually a pretty going concern that they're taking over. Final question, I suppose, is, is there any question now, though, of the deployment of foreign peacekeepers? Almost none, I would say. There are not going to be any NATO boots on the ground. I think that can be said absolutely categorically. One of the reasons for that is actually you've had total victory, effectively, by one side against the other. There is no need for an interposition force at this point because Gaddafi's people have been pretty much completely routed. That was a scenario that might not have come about. You might have had a substantial period of fighting within Tripoli that might have needed an interposition force. The focus will now be on getting a UN mission on the ground. You need the UN there to coordinate a lot of things, humanitarian aid, making sure foreign cash that's been frozen comes into the country, some reconstruction and so on. That might need some kind of protection force. If there is to be anything more than that, there's still a possibility of the African Union. But the overall impression you have had this week is that NATO, and particularly the US, want to pack up and go home. That is the overall impression one has. And leave the Libyans to get on with what is regarded internationally as potentially a pretty good economic going concern. James Blitz, thank you very much indeed. Well, uncertain times internationally are always good for the price of gold, and it certainly seemed that's the case in the past month with the crisis in the Eurozone, war in Libya. The price of gold has been soaring. Joining me in the studio to discuss this phenomenon is the FT's Edward Haddas. Edward, the gold price has really been going up very sharply recently, although I gather it's fallen back in the last couple of days. But this is a phenomenon that's been going on for a couple of years now. Yes, it's been quite steady. Even before the crisis, gold has risen with other commodities. Gold is a very peculiar asset in that it has some use, as it were, in jewelry, 
but it's largely bought even as jewelry, as a sort of store of value. So its rise reflects both the affluence of people who can now afford to buy gold and the fear of people who think that an asset that has no financial return is worth buying. So both of those have been rising now for many years. The last couple of days, we've had quite a sharp correction, but not enough to really change the basic pattern. Now, give me some advice, Edward. Is, is this the bubble that's now kind of finished, or should I actually be hoarding even more gold? That's a really hard question to answer, which is a good way of dodging it, because gold will have a value over 50 years or 100 years. And if you have that long a perspective, then sure, hoard some more. There are lots of reasons to fear that the end of the current monetary debt overhang will be a large write down of a lot of asset values. And in that sense, gold will do well. And if you have the, the absolute chaos scenario, it's something that will always have its value. So in case of Armageddon, good to have gold. If you didn't have Armageddon, then you still would say, well, it was good insurance. So the question of whether you should buy some depends on how much you're willing to pay for your insurance against Armageddon that probably won't happen, and also how much you're willing to pay for insurance against a kind of massive government inflation that would wipe out the value of other assets relative to gold. On the other hand, uh, gold is quite expensive by almost any other historic standard other than the fear of, of disaster. So there, there are reasons to think that this could be a bubble that would end when monetary conditions calm down and people lose some of their fear. The final argument that I've heard made for, for buying gold is that with the rise of India and China in particular, you've got two huge new markets with a traditional interest in buying the stuff. It is a good argument. Of course, traditional interests tend to change when people get richer. So it may be that, that as the Chinese become more affluent and their financial system becomes a little less primitive, they will be less interested in buying gold, a comparable case for the Indians. But there's probably a gap in there where they get richer before they get more sophisticated financially and gold will go up. But there is a price condition here. One, one hears reports of when the price of gold jumps, Indians standing in line to melt down their jewelry and take something that they think is more valuable. Um, it's not necessarily the case that Indians and Chinese are much more price insensitive than other buyers of gold. Edward, thank you very much indeed. To our final topic for today, the escalating violence between Hamas in Gaza and the Israeli military. Both Israeli and Palestinian civilians were killed in the latest round of fighting, which also severely raised tensions between Egypt and Israel. Then a ceasefire was declared, but it's looking pretty fragile. Joining me from Jerusalem is the FT's Bureau Chief, Tobias Buck. Tobias, can you just bring us up to date? We're talking on, on Thursday afternoon. Was there a ceasefire and has it broken down now? Yes, well, we, we always tend to describe ceasefires between the Gaza Strip and Israel as shaky or fragile, and this one indeed has proven more shaky than most of its predecessors. After a sort of uh, quite a violent spike over the weekend, the militant factions in the Gaza Strip declared a truce on Monday afternoon. Now, uh, within uh, really 24 to 48 hours, that already has broken down. Um, there have been several deadly Israeli airstrikes on the Gaza Strip in which at least two militants have been killed. And at the same time, militant groups in Gaza have resumed their rocket fire on nearby Israeli cities. So it's proving very difficult to stem this escalation and cool things down again. And what caused it in, in the beginning? Because oddly, while the whole of the Arab world seems to have been in tumult, Gaza and, and the West Bank, which traditionally have been the focus of international concern, were relatively quiet. But now it's changed. Why? Well, what 
happened was that last week, 15 to 20 gunmen crossed from the Egyptian Sinai into Israel and started a series of attacks on buses and vehicles traveling near the Red Sea resort of Eilat. Eight Israelis were killed in one of the worst attacks on Israeli soil in recent years. Now, Israel has blamed this attack on a militant group in Gaza called the Popular Resistance Committees. They haven't really supplied any proof of this, and many people in Gaza say this is not the case. But in any case, the Israelis uh, were very sure that this attack was indeed carried out by Gaza-based groups and started a series of bombing raids on southern Gaza, on on the southern Gaza Strip in particular, in which by now I think 15, 16 Gazans were killed. And that really set off this sort of cycle of violence, and uh, which continues to this day. Now, it, it also uh, has had the collateral effect, if one can call it that, of, of severely worsening Israeli-Egyptian relations, because as you say, this initial attack came from Egyptian soil, or via Egyptian soil, and the Israelis, in their retaliation, killed some Egyptian policemen, Is this the long-feared deterioration and increase in tensions between Israel and Egypt following the fall of Hosni Mubarak? We can't really overstate the sort of significance of Israeli-Egyptian relations at, at the current moment. Israel is determined, one could almost say desperate, not to let its vital strategic relationship with the new Egyptian government deteriorate. So the death of five Egyptian border guards, presumably through Israeli fire, though that hasn't been confirmed for the time being, sort of dealt a massive blow. And what we saw was large-scale demonstrations in Cairo and other Egyptian cities against Israel. Now, of course, in the old days under Mubarak, those demonstrations probably wouldn't have taken place. Now the Egyptian leadership has to pay a great deal of attention to these protests and as a result sort of had to come down quite hard, at least in their language, on uh, the Israeli government. And I think what we see is that as long as there is no crisis, as long as everything sort of goes fine in the region, there's no real reason for Egypt and Israel to have a fallout. However, when a crisis does erupt and when the Egyptian street starts to boil, then it'll be much more difficult for the two sides to keep their relationship going. Tobias, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week. My thanks to James Blitz and Edward Haddas in the studio in London and to Tobias Buck in Jerusalem. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.